Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Grand Rounds. Uh, we, we made a change uh, this morning. Uh, some of the families and the pediatricians from the community, Sandy Hook community, uh, Newtown community reached out uh, and they wanted us to uh, change the way we, uh, we honor the children and the teachers who lost their lives nine years ago today. Um, and in response to that, uh, we're moving the date of this Grand Rounds, which we'll continue to have it every year, but we're gonna have it at a different date to respect them. We listened to them. Uh, I appreciate the, the pain that they felt. And, uh, and, and so we, as, as a community, feel that we need to embrace what our community asks of us. Uh, I do wanna take time this morning to honor the memory of the beautiful children and the teachers, the heroes who lost their lives in those horrific events that took place nine years ago today. Today is the actual date. And uh, I was asked perhaps to read a couple of the quotes from the children and, and what, the, what they mean for the, for the families. And I, and I will do that, not for, not for every child, but just for some. Charlotte, age six, smart, funny, curious, messy, and adventurous. Her family said, we like to use the world, bold. Daniel, seven-year-old, compassionate, always concerned that the people around her were happy and safe. He used to sit next to a special needs girl in class to make sure she was okay. And when she would lose her glasses, Daniel would find them. Olivia loved swimming and soccer and dancing in a pink tutu singing and art projects and math. At dinner, she led her family in saying grace and she was proud of her role as a big sister and her participation in a program at her parish and church. Josephine, age seven, known as Joey, was the girliest of her sisters and she adored her older siblings. The family wrote in a recent article in the Newtown Bee, Anna Grace, Marcus Green, Six-year-old, a buddy musician, Anna Grace had a gift for melody, pitch, and rhythm that stood out even in a musical family. As her father put it, she never walked anywhere. Her mode of transportation was dance. She danced from room to room and from place to place, and now she's in heaven. This morning, I found two quotes from uh, one of my heroes, Mother Teresa, and, and this is perhaps a way that we gain some peace. And what she says is, peace begins with a smile. Every time you smile at someone, it is an action of love, a, love, a gift to that person, a beautiful thing. And these children gave us smiles. So let's remember them today with a smile, a gift to each other, as we carry through these difficult times of COVID-19, of tornadoes, of Kentucky, the people who lost their lives, we can be kind to each other. Let's make sure we do that. Let's give each other a smile today in remembrance and honor of those who we have lost during this pandemic, during these troubled times. And let's begin with, with a brighter tomorrow. So with that, I'm gonna ask all of us to take a moment of silence and remember the children, remember the teachers. Thank you. Uh, we, uh, so this morning, we're gonna have, uh, again, the change in, in the program, and uh, we were going to have the Ask the Experts this coming Friday. Uh, Dr. Shriver is on a well-deserved break this week. We'll get him back in January. Uh, but the great news is we have two amazing faculty members that are going to give you uh, an update, a little twist from John. and. Uh, uh, but I think they will, they will make us proud. And I'm going to introduce both of them right now. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Dr. Hassan Al-Shabib, as one of our upcoming starts in the Department of Pediatrics and the Division of Infectious Diseases. Uh, Hassan uh, obtained a bachelor's from American University in Beirut, and then his medical degree from the same university in 2007. Uh, he did a pediatric and adolescent medicine residency also there, uh, and finished in 2014 
but you know, he came, he came to the US and decided to do additional training. So this is a seasoned infectious disease provider. Um, and he's proven that during the time that he spent here at Connecticut Children's. He did his uh, pediatrics again at uh, State University of New York and upstate and then a pediatric infectious disease fellow, fellowship and finished in 2017. And we were able to soon after that actually have him join us here at Connecticut Children's. And I'm gonna read something that, that is perhaps, uh, it really tells you a little bit about him. This is from a, pa a patient. Uh, this is not something that I made up or came up with. This is actually from a patient that he took care of, uh, a mother of a child and says, Dr. El-Shabib is a true honor to his profession, deserving high accolades for his expertise and excellence in providing true patient-centered care. Leaving his office, I felt good that all our concerns were being addressed and met. Dr. El-Shabib went above and beyond the care for my baby and demonstrated concern for me as well. Although I was not the patient, he'd made it a priority to inquire about my well-being. And, and that, that is Hassan. And then following uh, Hassan, we have another one of our stars, Dr. Heather Torrey, who had the chance, I uh, was proud to be able to recruit a few years ago. Uh, she uh, did her BA, got a bachelor's at Middlebury College, uh, an MD from Tufts University School of Medicine, uh, also has a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. And uh, she did her residency in pediatrics at Yale, rheumatology at Boston Children's, and in addition to that, trained in patient safety and quality at Harvard Medical School, finished in 2014. She's currently an assistant professor of pediatrics, and she served as the interim chief quality and safety officer um, she was the person that was taking care of us uh, for, for a number of years. And then uh, we brought in uh, Dr. Lori Pelletier, and she's currently serving as the, as the, the Associate uh, Chief of Quality and Patient Safety Officer. Uh, and she's a member of the Division of Excellence in Patient Safety and Clinical Quality, which serves as an interim division director as well. Uh, Heather is, is simply outstanding. Uh, she's a, a young faculty member who's done uh, amazing work for us, uh, who really carries uh, the, that patient safety uh, heart with her everywhere she goes and has made us much, much better. But she's also a truly outstanding pediatric rheumatologist and she will give uh, a great presentation today on, on Missy. Uh, so I'm gonna have uh, these two uh, junior fabulous faculty members who strengthen the Department of Pediatrics come up and give you a session on Ask the Experts. So I'm gonna ask with Dr. El-Shabib to begin and then we'll go with Dr. Tori. We'll have questions at the end, Hassan. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Schreiber, for the touching and kind words uh, from the children. At the same time, thank you very much for the kind uh, introduction and uh, uh, kind introduction. Thank you. Um, uh, so today I'll be updating, I'll be filling quite the big shoes uh, of uh, Dr. Schreiber, so I'll do my best uh, to do that. Uh, and I'll be covering uh, quite the updates uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks. There are a couple of major uh, updates, um, as you guys are probably, most of you are aware of. Uh, occurring uh, nationally and uh, around uh, the world. So ob obviously everybody knows about Omicron uh, by now. Uh, it's been uh, spreading uh, quite a bit uh, nationally and quite a bit uh, across uh, the world. I'll be trying to describe uh, most of my presentation will contain quite a bit of images, graphs, pie charts and whatnot. Um, that, and I'll try to describe these as much as possible, especially for those who are listening over podcast services or audio services uh, uh, nationally. Uh, so you can see uh, on the top left uh, a map uh, of the U.S. Uh, this uh, Omicron variant has been detected uh, in quite a number of states, and I wouldn't be surprised in the next uh, week or so uh, it would be uh, present across uh, the states uh, in every uh, state. And this has uh, the, the Omicron variant was first described on November 28th uh, down in Botswana, in South Africa. So within, within less than two weeks, or within two weeks uh, since then, and it already has spread quite a bit in the in the U.S. Uh, the bottom figure of the world shows you uh, two different variations of colors, uh, the ones with the dark uh, orange and the light orange. The dark orange where uh, it was an actual case was described, um, was detected in the country. Uh, the light orange is uh, it was uh, detected in somebody who came in from outside, uh, from outside that country. But you can see that uh, it, is ha it has spread quite significantly uh, across the world. And it's not a surprise that uh, because uh, people are still flying, we've had multiple holidays, we've had um, Thanksgiving holiday recently, we've had uh, people catching up, um, uh, trying to fly to, their love to their, see their loved ones and their families, and you can easily go from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world within a span of 18 hours or so. So a variant like Omicron can, can spread uh, quite uh, easily. 
the figure on the left, uh, it's uh, from the CDC website. Uh, these are um, the variants that are currently circulating in the US. Obviously, the most up-to-date I have is the one up to uh, December 4th. And you can see that most of that orange bars are the Delta variant, which is not uh, surprising. Um, and these are updated uh, almost on a couple of weeks uh, basis. The CDC uh, runs um, testing across the state, trying to detect uh, different variants, and they're almost 99% uh, confidence, uh, when, uh, confidence when it comes to uh, the level of accuracy and the level of sensitivity of these tests. So, so far, at least up, to, up until December 4th, the Delta variant has been the predominant almost 99.9% .9 up there. Obviously, in the next couple of weeks, we may see, we, we will probably see a, a change in the, these uh, variants, especially with Omicron already landed in the US. Uh, so uh, again, in the next couple of weeks, um, uh, we will definitely see a change in these uh, numbers. So I'm in, um, as Dr. Salazar was pointing out, I'm an international medical graduate, so I wanted to point out a couple of things for inter our international um, uh, travelers. Uh, starting December 6th, uh, so almost uh, a week ago, uh, the U.S. Uh, will require testing within one day of travel versus the three days of travel that we used to do. And the one day of travel to accommodate that, obviously, some many countries, uh, you're not usually you're not able to get a PCR test uh, done and resulted within 24 hours of flight. So uh, they opted uh, for uh, okaying the um, uh, antigen-based tests, which usually come out in 15, uh, 30 minutes. They have uh, restricted travel from uh, these uh, countries, uh, which Botswana and South Africa are the ones that uh, had uh, Omicron originated uh, from, along with uh, other countries too. And there is a nice, uh, nice very nice algorithm under the CDC website uh, that tells you exactly kind of a flow chart uh, where uh, where are you coming from first are you vaccinated or not what kind of testing and, where, and are you able to travel or not depending on the test results depending on the vaccination status and depending on some exceptions uh, that uh, can apply but all of these are very very nicely laid out on the CDC website National transmission, uh, as obviously is the case, and if you wasn't able to put it in a, in a time lapse, uh, unfortunately, my presentation, but you can see in a time lapse that more and more um, uh, counties and more and more states in the U.S. are becoming are heading toward that toward that high transmission. Even the southern states, where it used to be moderate uh, transmission, is pushing towards that uh, high uh, high uh, transmission across uh, the U.S. And more and more of these are becoming uh, are switching to more and more, unfortunately, high trans. Uh, mission, um, as you guys probably have known uh, through uh, different media outlets. Uh, so these are the cases versus beds. On the left, uh, you can see the percent weekly change of staffed beds that uh, ha that uh, have a COVID and uh, COVID nineteen um, uh, patient, uh, and on the right, uh, the number of uh, cases. Uh, and you can see the darker uh, the, um, the images or darker, I guess, the green teal uh, color, uh, the higher the number of uh, admitted uh, patients. And you can see that there is a quite a, a significant difference between how much cases we have at this point, at least in the previous five days, uh, given the dates uh, that I show you here from, from December 4th to December 10th, uh, versus the number of weekly staff beds. Uh, and, the, and this number is expected to continue uh, to rise. Um, uh, there are reports that that across the board, across nationally, it's almost 15% increase in um, admitted patients, and even in the Northeast, it's closer to 30, 33%. Uh, at least I was reading the news uh, in the morning uh, today. So. We are definitely heading up uh, to a peak, uh, whether or not this is related to because people are gathering more during, uh, during uh, Thanksgiving or because of the Omicron variant or a combination of both, uh, we, will, we will have uh, to see in the next uh, week or so. When looking at the cases versus death, again, on the right are the number of cases or the percent change in the cases in the last seven days uh, versus the uh, death um, uh, rate and um, um, uh, on the left. Uh, you can see that uh, on the number of cases is much higher than the number of deaths, fortunately. Um, but in some states, uh, this change has been going uh, quite, uh, quite uh, upwards. Uh, again, this is something that usually death lags uh, the um, increase and in peak in number of cases uh, by about two weeks or so. Uh, and again, as I said, between for the cases and beds, there's a possibility that is this related to um, the, the gathering in the last uh, Thanksgiving, or is it more of the Omicron, or probably more likely a combination of uh, both. 
So uh, vaccination update, it's been almost a year since we had the first EUA for the Pfizer vaccine and following that the Moderna vaccine it was approved or it was authorized, uh, sorry, in um, December on December 11th, uh, 2020. And since then we have had uh, quite the uh, progress. Uh, we, uh, the, uh, the authorization went down to 16 year, years old and above. A third dose was uh, approved for the immunocompromised, solid organ transplants, etc. Um, and then we went down to 12 years uh, old and above. Recently, the booster for adults was approved. And right after that, the five-year-old and above um, uh, had authorization of the vaccination after data have shown quite the uh, excellent efficacy of these uh, vaccines in this uh, age group. Recently, I think last week, in the middle of last week or, early, or late last week, uh, the booster doses uh, for, um, for patients has been approved for 16 years and older. So uh, anybody who is 16 years or older uh, should be able to get the vaccine, provided obviously uh, if they got the Pfizer vaccine. So the CDC also has these very nice uh, tables of, uh, showing you what if, if you received one vaccine, uh, who can get the books, uh, booster, when can you get the booster, and which boosters uh, can these uh, patients get. Uh, so for example, if somebody who is a 16-year-old received the Pfizer uh, vaccine and has been almost six months uh, since their last vaccine, they're eligible only for the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Uh, they're not eligible for any of the other vaccine like Moderna and J&J, &J, uh, just because the approval hasn't gone down uh, at all for both of these uh, vaccinations. Uh, and obviously, if you're 18 years and older and above, this has already been established as an important booster. And we'll talk more about that in a second, how important the boosters are in our uh, fight or possibly in our fight uh, against uh, Omicron. Moderna and J&J &J hasn't been uh, much of a change, uh, still uh, 18 years and uh, older for both vaccines, uh, six months after completing uh, the series for Moderna and two months after completing the series for J&J. &J. And with both of these vaccines, you can get any of the vaccines, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna or J&J, &J, and it's an uh, approved, um, approved indication in the U.S. So what are the number of vaccines that we have uh, given uh, in the U.S.? Um, uh, that, and these are uh, across uh, the U.S. Uh, and the last up-to-date I had was uh, on December 11th. You can see that at least one, one dose, almost 240 million people or almost 71 or 72% of the U.S. population have at least received uh, one dose. And if you go down by age group, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't break down from like 5 to 11 or 12 to uh, 18 and it doesn't break these data down but you can see that the population above uh, five, above equal to five years of age they've received at least 76.4% have at least received one dose uh, for the fully vaccinated um, uh, people, uh, it's almost uh, close to 202 million, which is almost 61% of the U.S. population. Not the best numbers when it compares to the rest uh, in some countries and the rest of the world, but definitely much better than what we used to. Uh, and the population, especially the pediatric population, we're talking about the population above 5 or 12, we're seeing upwards of 70% of this population have already been fully vaccinated, and meaning received uh, their primary series, whether that's uh, uh, from Pfizer. Uh, from the booster, since this has been uh, approved um, relatively recently around the summertime, uh, almost uh, all adults uh, in the U.S., uh, almost 28 or almost close to 29% of the U.S. population has gotten their booster doses, and this number is expected uh, to rise uh, in the coming weeks, especially in the face of Omicron, um, and especially that more and more people will be eligible given that uh, probably the six-month period or the two-month period have elapsed uh, already. Uh, for a total of, and this um, uh, booster doses have been given almost for 26% of the U.S. Uh, population. Definitely, these are great numbers, but definitely there is uh, much uh, more work uh, to be done. And, um, um, and I think that these number of vaccines or the number of doses will continue to increase in the coming weeks uh, into 2022. Vaccinations across uh, the United States, you can see quite a number of variations. Uh, some of the, the northeastern states uh, and uh, some of the other states have achieved uh, quite a bit of above uh, 65 or 70 percent in total um, in total vaccination rates. I'll be focusing a bit later on the Connecticut data specifically, uh, but unfortunately, some states still lag when it comes to the percent of uh, people who are uh, fully vaccinated. And that is something I was listening to a podcast uh, earlier this morning um, uh, hosted by 
by the IDSA, uh, and they were uh, talking about a COVID collaborative, uh, which is a collaborative of many physicians, scientists, and, um, and people from the communities, uh, how they are trying to push, especially in states that have low vaccination rates relatively, of trying to push through um, uh, going down to the different ethnicities, different races, different leaders, um, re leaders from both parties, bipartisan, uh, trying to push that and as much as possible. Um, and uh, trying to uh, get people to get uh, vaccinated, give them the right information, give them the facts, uh, encourage them to ask questions, uh, encourage them, <clears throat> encourage them to have answers uh, for all of the for all of the questions. Try not to be judgmental or anything of that sort. So trying to push as much as possible. And I think um, uh, even with Connecticut, with the, our high vaccination rates, I think we can still uh, do uh, better by pushing more and more towards. Um, giving people more and more information and more and more facts about these vaccines and, and sitting, them, sitting down with them and answering uh, questions. So moving on specifically to uh, locally and regionally with uh, uh, Connecticut, obviously it's not very different from what the from the whole uh, national uh, picture is. Uh, we do have a high rate of uh, transmission across the board, except for some uh, counties uh, here and there, uh, but it is uh, quite uh, high across the board, and it's almost like more than 15, uh, 15 more than 15 cases per 100,000 uh, population. If you look at the, also, by, this is the most up-to-date I have from uh, December 9th, uh, you can see that the number of cases is uh, continuing uh, to rise in uh, Connecticut. Uh, you can see we had a, a peak um, uh, last uh, October to January, that's when the vaccinations were approved. Uh, we did have small peaks here and there, but we're obviously having a, a, a surge, uh, uh, a surge uh, since um, uh, since. Omicron variant news have started to pop up and people are getting back uh, to their uh, daily lives. In contrast, when you look at the number of deaths, it seems that the number of deaths is uh, still uh, muted, which is uh, fortunate. Um, and uh, hopefully this will uh, continue. Obviously, as I said, usually sometimes um, uh, the um, number of cases or number of deaths, they lag of the resurgent cases by two weeks or so. So hopefully this will continue and this will definitely uh, give us a good idea that uh, Two things are definitely helping out at the very least, vaccines and um, uh, physical distancing, masking, hand hygiene, and all uh, sorts of other um, uh, protective measure, measures that we're uh, doing. Uh, so hopefully this number will continue to uh, stay low. Uh, but um, the only given the Omicron variant and given the new variant coming in, it's still um, it's, it's early infancy. We'll see more data coming up uh, soon. Uh, but I hope that this uh, continues to be uh, the case. Number of vaccinations uh, given in uh, Connecticut also has uh, has had uh, its ups and downs. Obviously, after approval back in December, we saw a peak quite uh, nicely go up to January into April to May, where we had almost more than 300,000 uh, doses uh, given um, uh, per week. And that uh, number has quieted down and we see uh, quite a, a bit of a peak going up and mainly for two reasons. Uh, the booster vaccines that were approved uh, during uh, the late summertime and uh, obviously the five uh, and above um, uh, indication uh, where families are rushing in to get their five-year-old and above uh, vaccinated against this uh, virus. So looking at this pie chart, this is a more granular data looking at different, different age groups. And this is the number of people or the percentage of the population that got um, uh, the one dose uh, of the vaccine. Uh, so you can see uh, the 65 to 74 year old, almost 100%, if not 100% of the people have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. And that goes down to from the five to 11 year old, who almost uh, a quarter of them have already gotten uh, the vaccine, at least one dose. Uh, and I would expect this number to start um, uh, creeping up uh, slowly if not um if not uh, fast in the next uh, couple of uh, weeks. So we did, uh, we, Connecticut has done a great job of maintaining this uh, vaccination rate and uh, recommending the vaccination for different, uh, for different populations. Fully vaccinated, uh, also we have uh, very high numbers, especially in certain age groups, especially the vulnerable age groups. Those are, uh, are the ones that mainly above 65 years of age. We're close to 92 or 90% on average almost uh, getting there. Um, and at the same time, 12% uh, almost of the 5 to 11 years uh, of age group already gotten the fully vaccinated at this uh, point uh, in time. Uh, so this is the testament to the um, local authorities and public health officials and also the families who are uh, 
pushing to get their young ones uh, vaccinated to protect uh, uh, their young ones, to protect their immediate family members, and to protect other family members that may have either immune-compromised conditions or increased risk of severe uh, disease from COVID. So looking um, uh, from the other side, um, looking at the da daily test positivity, at, uh, at least when last I checked la late last week, it was around hovering around 6%. Um, uh, and the number of admissions was 585 uh, with COVID-19 across the state. Uh, recently, I checked the data last night, it was around 600 uh, something. There was an increase of four, 40 or so. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, 80%, almost 77% uh, of these uh, hospitalized are vaccinated so uh, there is uh, definitely a room for uh, improvement room for educating uh, these families room for sitting them sitting down with them and having one-to-one -one conversation uh, addressing their concerns and addressing their questions and definitely maybe presenting even this data and giving them uh, more information for them to make uh, the best decision for themselves and the best uh, judgment uh, for themselves and their immediate family uh, members so uh, there is a nice also a little graph that um, uh, Connecticut DPH has uh, it gives you kind of a weekly or almost on a weekly basis, uh, the risk of uh, unvaccinated persons testing positive and the risk of unvaccinated person dying from COVID-19. So usually like, I mean, it's sometimes hard to say what's five times greater, what's 16 times greater. So um, try to look for lung cancer risk and try to identify uh, those who smoke versus non-smoking. So those who smoke have a 15 to 30 times greater risk in dying and developing lung cancer versus those with non-smoker. And it's kind of uh, quite uh, similar to the one uh, that if a person is unvaccinated, they're 16 times or just more or less the same uh, uh, same uh, risk uh, of uh, getting uh, of uh, dying uh, from COVID-19 uh, versus those who are uh, vaccinated. So it's, not, it's sometimes nice to have these numbers together so that people can understand more of what is what does 16 times uh, risk uh, mean. So it gives it gives an um, easier discussion with the families and when you have this uh, this uh, kind of uh, example. And it's something that people relate to, people understand, people understand that smoking causes lung cancer. So it's nice to have these uh, together when they are discussing it with families. So the couple, so there are a bunch of studies that came out. Uh, granted, you have to take them um, uh, with a grain of salt at this point in time, just because there are very few subject numbers, very few test subject numbers, and very early data being disseminated. Hopefully, we'll have more data as uh, the weeks uh, pass by, and we'll probably have more and more data about this uh, more and more uh, Omicron variant. Although some experts are identifying uh, some some trends in uh, in this uh, variant. So. A, a study that came out uh, from obviously South uh, Africa uh, have included 12 patients, uh, six fully vaccinated with two doses of the Pfizer vaccine and six fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine and had COVID-19 in the past. And you can see that they uh, took, the, uh, took their sample, blood samples ran uh, some testing and identified their antibody uh, levels uh, to see if that uh, if these antibodies are able to um, uh, able to neutralize Omic the omicron variant or not interestingly enough that the, the the people who got their the antibodies from the six fully vaccinated without the disease uh, did not show any neutralizing antibodies um, and it was significantly much uh, lower uh, than those who had six fully vaccinated and had COVID 19 in the past uh, one caveat with these is that obviously you only have 12 patients, six uh, between the two groups. And you have to keep in mind, looking more at the granular data, if you look at the days post-vaccination, when they tested those who were vaccinated only, uh, some of them got tested within uh, less than two weeks uh, from, their, uh, from their second dose. So it could be some data out there could be um, a bit... Um, uh, a bit um, skewed uh, towards uh, one uh, or the other, but at least this is one of the first studies that came out uh, that has been uh, still waiting peer-reviewed uh, to be uh, published. The second uh, study, uh, could not all, unfortunately I wasn't able to get a hold of the actual study since it was waiting being peer-reviewed uh, in the National England Journal of Medicine, uh, but in Israel uh, there were uh, multiple uh, reports of the same study where they looked at 20 subjects and they compared blood from subjects who had the two doses five to six months ago uh, so and uh, booster dose uh, that has been given one month ago. So they had two groups uh, uh, divided. And obviously they found that with Omicron, um, uh, patients who got only the two doses, so the initial primary vaccination series, uh, did not develop any significant neutralizing antibody to the Omicron. 
However, uh, the booster dose does increase that, increase that uh, significantly, and it, it does provide significant protection uh, against Omicron. So at least the preliminary data shows that getting the booster uh, shot uh, does uh, help a lot in boosting these antibody levels uh, so that you have a much more chance of neutralizing uh, the virus or neutralizing Omicron. It's obviously still lower uh, than against uh, the Delta, uh, but um, definitely we are seeing more and more at least data, and hopefully more and more data will be uh, will be be um, studied in the near future to identify how much of the booster dose is an important uh, important factor when it comes to being protected against the Omicron uh, variant. Pfizer themselves, uh, the company, also released some preliminary studies themselves. Again, I didn't, I wasn't able to get a hold of the uh, of the of the trial itself, but they do say also they do note that three doses of the vaccine neutralizes the Omicron variant versus the two doses, and the third dose uh, increases the neutralizing antibodies by 25-fold versus the two uh, the two doses, which is not uh, sir, which is not uh, surprising. And, and interestingly enough, the titers after the booster dose are comparable to those after the two doses against the wild type. So the titers against the booster dose against Omicron is comparable to those against the wild type virus when we had the primary um, uh, initial series. To note that antibodies are not the whole story. You have also other arms of the immune system that can get, uh, take care of the virus, including the CD8 positive T cells. Uh, and interestingly enough, 80% of the epitopes of the Omicron variant are not affected by any mutations. You probably heard uh, the stories about how much the Omicron has so many uh, mutations, but unfortunately, it seems that 80% of these epitopes are still uh, intact. And um, two doses may still confer some protection against severe disease, but uh, still, this is very, very early data. We still have to wait for uh, much more data going down, down the road. So what's the future? Um, we obviously need more data about the Omicron. Hopefully we'll be having that in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, early observations by the WHO and other experts have shown that it, ha it is indeed uh, has increased trans transmissibility, but it seems to be causing milder disease uh, than expected. Could it be related just to the variant becoming more and more um, uh, pathogenic and more and more of an epidemic or endemic level versus uh, because of all of these mutations, the virus is not efficient as much to produce any severe disease is still a question to be answered. Some experts are also talking about expectation of a fourth dose. Is it six? Is it 12 months? Is it something between after the third dose? We're still waiting on that. Um, and Pfizer, are, they said if needed, they can be working on updating the vaccine to provide better protection against Omicron. And that can be available as early as March 2022. So all of this is still up there. All of this is still uh, pending, um, uh, pending some um, uh, more information. And hopefully we'll have that in the coming weeks. My last slide, I just want to talk about how um, COVID, since it started, seems to be evolving quite rapidly. And it's, it's a kind of um, going the route of the more of the survival of the fittest pathogen. So usually the best pathogen will be something, something highly contagious, rapidly and prolifically shed. It constantly evolves, evokes limited immunity so it can spread from one individual to another with ease. Only moderately virulent, so that it doesn't, if it's severely virulent and it causes the death of a patient quite immediately, you're kind of uh, limiting the spread of that virus. And obviously, the one thing also is zoonosis, which has been described uh, quite in a number of animals. So, is, um, is um, COVID 19 virus heading to that direction? Probably so, and probably will be with us for quite a period of time, if not for a long uh, period of time. Thank you. I'll leave now with Dr. Tori with the MIC talk. Uh, Dr. El Shabib, now Dr. Tori. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me today to talk about uh, multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. So I wanted to just start actually with the thank you slide. Um, there is a fantastic multidisciplinary group of uh, Connecticut Children's team members who form the MISC Clinical Pathway Team, and they're all listed here, as well as, of course, my Division of Rheumatology colleagues. But I just wanted to put this slide up ahead of time because really everything I'm going to talk about today um, is generated through this, this larger group that's really working on delivering the best care um, for our patients here with MISC. So this hyperinflammatory syndrome following a COVID infection was first reported in the United Kingdom at the end of April of 2020. 
And there was a case report that detailed what they called an unprecedented cluster of eight children with hyperinflammatory shock showing features similar to atypical Kawasaki disease or Kawasaki shock syndrome or, or toxic shock syndrome that were seen um, in 10 days in one center. So they saw eight children in 10 days and typically they say they would see one to two per week. And out of those eight children, four had a known prior COVID-19 exposure at the time. And of course, this is in the early stages of when we were probably missing some of those exposures. And so this case cluster that was reported formed the basis for these national alerts that you see here regarding this hyperinflammatory syndrome. And, and as we all, I'm sure, know up until this point, it was considered that COVID-19 was relatively mild and children were relatively unaffected. Shortly thereafterwards, this hyperinflammatory syndrome became recognized throughout the world, and the first uh, report in the United States was the National Health Advisory issued by the CDC on May 14th, 2020, that we were also seeing this hyperinflammatory syndrome, and it was noted to follow COVID-19 infection or exposure. And subsequently, we now know this as multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC. And just to note that um, in the UK, this is referred to as the pediatric inflammatory multi-syndrome, multi-system syndrome temporally associated with uh, SARS-CoV. I just wanted to put this graph up here. Obviously at the time we were noting that this was following uh, COVID infection. And just if you follow this over the course, this is until November 30th, you see that gray black hashed line is the uh, COVID-19 um, infection rate. And you can see that just a, a few weeks following that, you see the darker blue line really mirror that, um, which are the cases of MISC. So after much study and discussion, there are some case definitions that were created for MISC to both track this and, and study it, as well as, of course, to treat patients. Just focusing on the middle category, which is the CDC's uh, case definition for this, which is what we use and follow here. These are children who are less, they're uh, patients who are less than 21 years of age who have had a temperature greater than 38 for at least 24 hours or a subjective fever for greater than 24 hours. I think that's really important to note because as we'll see, rapid uh, treatment and, and recognition of this is really important for improving outcomes. Um, as opposed to, for example, Kawasaki disease, we often wait four or five days before initiating treatment. This really requires rapid treatment. So this is for 24 hours. It requires severe illness, so essentially someone, for the most part, needing to be hospitalized, and at least two organ systems that are involved. <clears throat> and those really include all of the different uh, organ systems that we see. And then there needs to be laboratory evidence of inflammation. And I won't go through all of those, but really a lot of our inflammatory markers uh, are across the board off elevated in, in these children. And then a current or recent finding of the following. So either an actual positive COVID test by PCR or antigen test, um, or serologies, or a positive COVID, um, SARS-CoV antibody testing, or a known clear exposure within the prior four weeks. I think earlier on, we weren't quite sure how to really tell whether or not there was a, a COVID-related exposure or test, and now this is a part of that case definition and criteria. And then importantly, there is no alternative diagnosis. One of the first studies in the United States that really took a look at this uh, patients with MISC in the United States and utilizing that CDC case definition was this that was published in July in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I just wanted to highlight that two of our fantastic ICU physicians, Dr. Rob Parker and Dr. Chris Carroll were authors on this study. And it was a prospective and retrospective surveillance of patients who were admitted to participating health centers from March um, through May. So some of this was retrospective, who met the case definition for the uh, MISC. And I just wanted to point out there was 186 patients who met that study definition. Uh, they, they broke it down into whether there was a confirmed COVID infection or a link to someone, um, but really just focusing on the, um, the two sides so the column on the far right. Uh, there was a slight predominance of male uh, to female sex at 62%. Uh, the median age was right around eight. There was a higher uh, predominance of uh, non-Hispanic Black or Hispanic and Latino um, patients compared to other um, race and ethnic populations um, that were seen. And I think this is really critical. 73% of these patients were previously completely healthy with no underlying um, comorbid conditions. I'll say these, um, this spread and distribution, which was seen really early on, is very similar and almost mirrors what we're seeing now in terms of the, the demographics. 
almost uh, significantly more than half, 70% of these patients had four or more organ systems involved. And I think this is also really interesting. 80% of these patients were admitted to intensive care units um, at that time. And you can see that there's a 20% mechanical ventilation rate. Thankfully, these are not the same uh, proportions that we are uh, seeing now, uh, likely related to improved recognition and, and faster treatment. And then um, at the time of this, there were uh, four patients or 2% of these patients who had um, died as a result of MISC, which is also very concerning. So if you look now, the incidence of this is estimated at two per 100,000. And this is again, as of November 30th, this is the latest CDC data that shows that there are almost 6,000 patients with MISC who have been diagnosed in the United States and uh, 52 patients with um, who have died from MISC. Again, this rate is not as much as what was seen earlier on, and I think that's really due to faster recognition and treatment. <clears throat> I wanted to highlight this, and this is again out of that clinical pathways team for MISC patients who are treated here at Connecticut Children's. And if you look at the yellow bars here, these are the number of patients that have been, been admitted um, and diagnosed uh, confirmed positive MISC. The blue, the blue bars are patients who have been evaluated and utilized the pathway, but these are the number of patients that we've been seeing with uh, MISC here at Connecticut Children's. This is, I can assure you, much higher than, for example, the number of patients we see month to month with Kawasaki disease or MAS. And this was just the most recent data from a national perspective, again, as of November, that really mirrors the um, proportions that were seen earlier in, um, in the New England Journal of Medicine study from the very beginning. So what is the pathophysiology? What have we learned about MISC over the last um, period of time? So it's proposed as a likely immune response to COVID-19, and I think that graph showing the temporal association between the two conditions really is very illustrative of that. Um, the mechanisms that we have proposed are partially derived from comparisons to severe COVID-19 and Kawasaki disease, although this MISC certainly seems to be distinctive. And it's put under the, the umbrella of these cytokine storm syndromes, which essentially mean that there's some sort of trigger which causes a hyperinflammatory response, um, triggering release of uh, essentially a cytokine storm, multiple cytokines, in a variety of these different conditions. And I like this graph because it shows how MISC and severe COVID can all relate to Kawasaki disease and also to um, MAS associated with other rheumatic conditions, um, all of which have really sought to inform our both the etiology as well as treatment um, and how we could improve the, the care for these patients. Um, studies of some of the viral sequences in MISC and COVID-19 have suggested that it's um, less likely to be viral factors and more likely to be some sort of host factor that play a role in why some children develop MISC. If we look into that a little bit more, um, this was one proposed look, look at the immune system and how, if you look at the top, a prior uh, COVID infection can trigger both the innate and the adaptive immunities, and those are just uh, some examples of the ways that we think that that can trigger this uh, cytokine storm of IL-6 and IL-1, um, IL-17, um, variety of other uh, cytokines that cause this hyperinflammatory state. Um, some though the activation of the inflammasome, um, there's recruitment of neutrophils, there's decreased expression of HLA-DR on um, antigen presenting cells, which decreases their ability to present uh, antigens, um, a variety of other factors of endothelial um, damage. There's increased expression of HLA-DR on certain T cell uh, populations, which um, suggests that they're essentially in an activated state, an activated phenotype. Um, increase, there's some role of autoantibodies uh, you see there and, and some autoantibodies that directly um, cause uh, tissue damage. So this is just a variety of ways that both the innate and the adaptive immune systems are likely involved in creating this cytokine storm. Some of the more uh, specific postulated mechanisms. So there's clearly seen an elevated or aberrant interferon response um, in response to the viral um, trigger that's causing hyperinflammation. You can see at the graph below that in on the um, left-hand side, it's more mild disease. And on the right-hand side, you can see that's compared to more severe COVID-19 infection disease and also MISC, where there's essentially a delayed um, interferon response that leads to um, prolongation of viral load and increase of a variety of different uh, chemokines, IL-6, TNF, a variety of the other IL-10 um, chemokines that we see, and that significant uh, elevations of those. And then another um, proposed pathway is increase in GI mucosal permeability through increased zonulin release, which um, uh, regulates the permeability. It's a reversal regulator, reversible regulator of um, 
of uh, you know, the, the mucosal permeability and the GI tract through tight junctions, and there's an increased release of this in patients who have MISC, suggesting that that potentially plays a role as well. So I think we're still learning a lot about this, and what's really interesting is that we are also using this as a time to learn a lot about, um, even more about uh, Kawasaki disease and some of the other conditions that cause this widespread inflammatory response. MISC has many similarities to these other hyperinflammatory conditions like Kawasaki disease. There are certainly dis differences noted and, and distinct phenotypes. <clears throat> if you see in the, the center there, the similarities are, of course, the fever. You can see rash, conjunctivitis, so a lot of similar clinical uh, disease findings, mm -hmm. cardiovascular involvement. Um, I, I, we talked about the elevated lab findings and the inflammatory markers, so CRP, <clears throat> ferritin, D-dimer, although the ferritin elevation is often not as high um, as we can see in some other inflammatory syndromes like MAS. You can have coronary artery dilation in both of them. This tends to not be at, um, seen as much um, in MISC as it is in Kawasaki disease. If you look to um, MISC on the left-hand side, one of the significant differences is that we've really been able to very clearly identify the viral trigger of MISC, which is that it occurs four to six weeks after a SARS-COVID uh, infection, whereas the viral trigger of Kawasaki disease is something that we've been searching for for the last few decades um, and still have been unable to, to identify specifically what that is. Um, in MISC, we tend to see more um, significant um, elevated lab findings that relate to cardiovascular dysfunction, so troponin and BMP. As we talked about earlier, interference signature, IL-10 is higher in MISC. Of course, that's not very helpful when we're looking at um, actual diagnosing a patient because those tests are not readily available. In MISC, there's, um, we see a lot of GI involvement, and that actually tends to be a really um, significant feature that earlier on especially was sometimes missed as a as a marker of this hyperinflammatory state so abdominal pain emesis diarrhea um, patients uh, frequently presenting with cardiac dysfunction and shock and a significant lymphopenia that we see um, so some those are some of the differences with kawasaki disease there do appear to be distinct clusters of misc patients based on their main features at presentation so uh, one seems to be more of a Kawasaki-like presentation and picture, and one seems to be a little bit different. So adolescents often have many involved organ systems. They almost always have cardiovascular involvement and GI involvement and have a higher incidence of shock and myocarditis, whereas younger children can present with a more classic Kawasaki-like presentation, although that Kawasaki-like presentation can also occur in the older populations, and it's even been um, reported in MISA, which is uh, this condition in adults. Uh, people have done a lot of work, and on the on the right is a, um, a group from Boston that did a lot of work looking at uh, patients with MISC versus Kawasaki disease. Um, labs that seem to suggest a greater likelihood of MISC, you know, early on include a much lower white blood cell count and platelet count, and also um, much lower sodium uh, level. Those were significant changes, and I think almost what's you know, it's important to obviously distinguish between two, the, these two conditions, um, partly because, as I said, MISC really requires rapid treatment. But I think the most important thing is just thinking the ability of, of thinking of either of these and really recognizing that this might be something that's that's um, in a patient who specifically might have some of the GI symptoms and some of the other features that we might not immediately recognize as a hyperinflammatory state. This was a group that did a study about risk factors um, for ICU admission in MISC and some of the findings that might be indicative of a more severe disease. Again, really just thinking about how can we most quickly recognize this and capture this and treat this to prevent this. And the significant um, findings that were indicative of that more severe disease were uh, a lymphopenia, the lower platelet count, a more highly elevated CRP, and then also, again, these interferon biomarkers, which I put in parentheses because less helpful clinically, um, but um, Dr. Schuler's group showed that there's really a very increased um, incidence of CXCL9, which is a marker of, uh, of interferon release um, in these patients. I will say that in comparison to the initial reports of the 80% um, ICU admission rate that were in the that initial New England Journal paper, our current, when we look at our clinical pathway, our current uh, median is about 15% of patients require ICU admission at this point here at Connecticut Children's. So how do we treat this condition? So this was first published in the American College of Rheumatology in July of 2020 and has subsequently been updated uh, twice with the most recent version in October. And essentially, um, the, the figure on the left-hand side is from those ACR guidelines, which talks about if a patient is hospitalized with MISC, 
The first line treatment is IVIG and um, IV steroids at a dose of one to two mg per kg per day. Um, as we were looking at this and working on this, there was a variety of different treatment approaches that happened in some of the earlier versions. I think one of the most significant changes that actually came out of this version three was that really recommending both IVIG and IV steroids at this lower dose, not um, what we sometimes call pulse doses or very high doses in um, the first line treatment for, for these patients. And there has been some studies in, uh, comparing IVIG to IVIG plus steroids in, um, significantly showing an improvement of IVIG plus steroids. There have not been studies that have directly compared IVIG and steroids to steroids alone. And then in refractory disease, we want really rapid intensification of treatment. So we should see improvement of this within 24 hours. And if not, that requires intensification of treatment with then a pulse of IV steroids followed by um, uh, either anakinra or some centers are using infliximab. So if you see on the right-hand side here is from our Connecticut Children's Pathway. Um, you can see that we uh, utilize both at low-dose steroids and IVIG here. We also do treat for a 48-hour rule-out of antibiotics typically in these patients, and all of these patients are placed on aspirin unless they have a low platelet count con with concern for bleeding. And then for a second-line agent, we go directly to anakinra, um, as, or, I'm sorry, we go to the, the steroid pulse dose and then directly to anakinra um, as the first-line biologic for these patients. So just the pearls, MISC really progresses quickly. So once recognized and confirmed, it should be treated immediately. Um, most patients will require a slow taper of immunomodulation over three to five weeks. And so most patients that we discharge, you'll see if they've been treated with anakinra, they are frequently tapered from anakinra while in, in the hospital, but they go home on this prolonged, we, we tend to do about a four week taper of steroids. And most groups across the country have seen that if you do slower ta tapers of, you know, over just sort of a week or, or even two, there's a much more significant risk of rebound um, and readmission for these patients. So we do that long taper. And then uh, monitoring improvement um, really focuses on watching return of fever, the CRP trend, and any evidence of organ dysfunction or how the patient is doing. I will say some of the laboratory studies, such as the elevated LFTs, elevated ferritin, that can be seen are um, seem to lag and are not as uh, good markers of sort of immediate immediate changes. Um, I just wanted to close with our uh, our Connecticut Children's Clinical Pathway. Um, which is on, as many things, our um, fantastic Clinical Pathways site. And this really goes into not only the treatment at the bottom, but really when to suspect this. Um, so any patient that's had a fever for 24 hours and doesn't really seem to have another plausible diagnosis and has any of those following, so GI symptoms, cardiovascular, rash, um, oral changes, respiratory symptoms, really the need to think about this um, and, and refer um, to the emergency department very quickly um, for evaluation of this because that rapid treatment is really necessary. Get that. So again, I wanted to um, thank all the members of the Clinical Pathways team and the Rheumatology Division and all of our uh, colleagues. And I just wanted to close with this. This is a picture of my two children um, after receiving their second um, COVID uh, vaccination shots. And I just, uh, you know, the, the treating patients with MISC in our hospital was kind of the forefront of my mind when I was excited to get the you know, vaccines for my children. So it really is a significant disease. I think we'll take questions. Thank now. you, Heather. Thank you very much. Great presentation. If you go both stay at the close to the podium, uh, and we have a, a number of questions. Uh, Hassan, is the spread of Omicron underestimated by who is and who is not testing? Uh, that's a very good uh, question. Uh, we do know that more variants will probably always uh, propagate, uh, especially in patients who are immune compromised. Uh, uh, especially those who are vaccinated. Uh, so that's a very good question. Um, I don't think there is much data out there yet, but uh, at least what we expected from the other variants, uh, it would be probably an answer. Uh, yes, it would be probably underestimated given that uh, some people are getting tested and some people are, are not. Yeah, the other one is related to travel restrictions um, and the questions. By the time the new variant is identified, is that, is that it has already spread to many countries. Um, why punish a country for telling the world it has a new variant? That is, that is a very uh, good question. Um, so in general, uh, I wouldn't say punish a country per se, but uh, in general, many of these countries, I mean, if they didn't have a great uh, public health system, great uh, testing, great uh, uh, opportunities for detecting any of these variants, uh, we wouldn't have been able to tell which countries uh, are able to get that. 
uh, from the second side of the question, whether or not uh, this Omicron variant is all over the place at this point in time, it's uh, likely that. Uh, I'm not sure if the policies uh, will reflect that uh, later in the coming weeks, uh, whether uh, it will be more restrictions for other countries versus uh, uh, releasing the restrictions or versus changing the restrictions. If uh, somebody got the booster, will be able to easier to get in the US. Uh, I'm not getting paid as much to get to make these decisions. I'll leave that to the uh, to the government officials and the public health officials out there. I'm not sure, Doctor Salazar, you have your uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that. I think you know, I think it's it's a um, uh, it's a great statement, and I, uh, I I do agree that once you know this was reported in in a, over a weekend, and then the next week it was all over the world, so it was probably too late. You know, so what we've known from these variants is what's really important is to get people vaccinated, to get people tested, and get ahead of the curve because it is it is coming, and Omicron will be here. So vaccination and boosters is really the way to go, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another question uh, is, isn't the Delta variant and not Omicron still the driver in the current epidemiology in the U.S.? So according to the CDC data up until December 4th, uh, it, um, uh, Delta was 99.9% detected across the states with a 99% accuracy. Uh, uh, the CDC have their own algorithm trying to pick up uh, these variants. Uh, but it is the one now coming, whether or not, as I said, it's a combination of uh, people getting together and we're seeing the aftermath after that with the bump in cases uh, versus this case numbers have been increasing slowly since people have been getting back. Schools are started again in September uh, and whether the Omicron will come in, make the make the whole uh, thing worse. Uh, it's uh, yet to see. But my expectation is it's going to be a combination uh, of uh, both. And just like many of the countries who are seeing uh, quite the surge in Omicron, I would expect the U.S. Uh, would be no different. Uh, Heather, um, question about vitamin D. Um, in, in your in your review of, of the literature, is vitamin D deficiency associated with more severe disease? With MISI, it appears to be more associated with more severe disease in adults. Yeah, there's actually a lot of um, interesting studies that are evaluating um, a variety of different additional factors like vitamin D. Um, it has not been, you know, when they look at kind of the, the meta-analysis and, and um, try to sort of do that um, independent prediction of what, what really is going to constitute, it has not sort of come into those, uh, those algorithms yet, um, but there are a lot of studies that are evaluating. And then also in, your, in your, the information you have, are there many kids who are fully vaccinated who end up with MISI? So that's, um, you know, I will say, I think it's going to be interesting to watch um, as we have more and more children, especially of the, the younger five to 12 year olds, and then when we can do um, even, even younger vaccinations um, to watch this. I will say that there has been um, a few case reports in adults of what they are, now, they are calling MISV, which is MIS after vaccination. Uh, there was a case report of a, a, a patient that classified as MIS, you know, C as a child, but was an 18 year old, um, just in terms of whether or not the vaccine itself could trigger MIS-C. And I mean, it certainly seems like nothing or not, nothing close to, to COVID infection at this time. But I think as we have a greater proportion of that younger age uh, vaccinated, that's going to be something that's really interesting to watch for. Uh, for either one of you, is post-vaccination myocarditis a milder version of MISI? That is a fantastic question. Um, there are many differences um, you know, that can be seen. I think, number one, we are not seeing the same hyperinflammatory state as a result of vaccination. So we haven't been seeing these children um, develop, develop MISC after vaccine, which would suggest to me that it's a different um, uh, pathophysiology. The other thing is the patients who come in with true myocarditis really seem to look like patients with other types of myocarditis, and we are not seeing the same um, significant in, 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 vast hyperinflammation, so a lot of the other inflammatory markers being significantly elevated, we are not necessarily seeing, obviously, significant um, cardiac, you know, monitor measures of cardiac dysfunction, so troponin, BNP, and those types of things, but it does not seem to be the same kind of systemic diffuse inflammatory response. Many of those patients have actually looked from a systemic standpoint very, very well. Correct. Uh, there's a, a great paper that was just published in Circulation. Uh, two of our team members are actually co-authors in that paper looking at myocarditis uh, post-vaccine and how well people have done, actually. It's a, it's a much different disease. Uh, last question, Hassan, for, for those who initially received the single Johnson & Johnson vaccine, are there sufficient antibodies to neutralize the Omicron variant? With, with, so with Johnson & Johnson, that first question, and then if you give a Pfizer booster, will that be enough? 
That's a very good question. I don't think uh, Johnson & Johnson have released any data, and I don't think there are any studies out there that specifically uh, is talking about uh, Johnson & Johnson. I'll be interested myself, obviously, you to get this data. Uh, but my expectation is that uh, given how the booster has been doing uh, with, um, uh, with, the boost, with the Pfizer, uh, my expectation it will be uh, the same. Do I have evidence for that at this point in time? Uh, unfortunately not, but that is something uh, we'll watch closely as, um, in the next, um, in the next uh, weeks or months. And then related to that from Dr. Adamenko, for those who receive the third dose because of their immunocompromised state, not a booster, is a booster also recommended, so an additional booster? Um, so the booster was uh, recommended across the board after completion of uh, the primary uh, series. Um, and again, I want your input, Dr. Salazar. I don't think there was any specific recommendations concerning that, but given the general recommendation of a booster dose after the primary series, uh, my expectation is yes, after six months, they should be able to get a booster dose uh, uh, from the Pfizer vaccine and if they're eligible for the J&J &J or Moderna vaccine. Okay, great. Uh, we have a number of other questions. We'll get them to our panel of experts. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. We had over 160 people today. Um, and we will finish there. Thank you, Dr. Shabib, Dr. Tori, for the great uh, Ask the Experts. We will not be here on Friday for this one, of course. We already took care of it. Uh, just for a, a reminder that our next meeting will be Tuesday, January 4th for Grand Rounds, and then Friday, January 7th for Ask the Experts. Dr. Schreiber will be back on that um, after his uh, time off. Um, I do want to take time to thank everyone in the office here for the spectacular series of Grand Rounds and all the CME events that, that we participate on, uh, they're well received and they work very hard to make sure we get it to you. I want to wish all of you a happy and healthy holiday uh, to you and everyone that is uh, associated with you and your families and your staff, and we'll see you once again uh, at the New Year. So take care, be well, be safe. Bye-bye.